0: Hello, I'm David Moscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In March of last year, I spoke with feminist theorist and friend of mine, Amanda Watson. We talked about managing life during the pandemic, and the conversation included thoughts about compassion, care, inequity, resistance, and of course, anxiety. Just over a year later, as the end of the pandemic begins, we are here to revisit that conversation. This time, our focus is on processing all of this. We pay special attention to the question, how are we managing late pandemic anxiety and what will return to quote unquote normal look like? As mentioned, my guest is Amanda Watson, feminist theorist, lecturer at Simon Fraser University and author of The Juggling Mother, Coming Undone in the Age of Anxiety. Let's start with a bit of retrospection. Thinking back on the last year, uh, has anything surprised you? I mean, perhaps something you'd expected to come about that that didn't or something you didn't think would come about that did? It is
1: sort of hard to remember what I expected back then, but I think it's worth asking. I was just reading something about memory and how we will tell about the pandemic and what that means we will leave out. It was a really fascinating piece, I think in the Atlantic. So I was, I went back and listened to our episode from last year thinking maybe I would have some clues, like what, you know, what has happened over the last year? What were we thinking about back in March uh, of 2020? And I noticed a few things (laughs) that that thing is like a time capsule. Like it's not that we were totally wrong on anything. In fact, like, I think we had done a lot of reading and a lot of scrolling you and i so we had a sense that this wasn't going to be over in 6 weeks or anything like that uh, so it wasn't it wasn't those things but we we spoke in about collective language we both sounded hopeful in a way cautiously optimistic i would say about the potential for a kind of universal an attitude toward like finding um, universal and like accommodating accessible uh, sort of policy for say sick days. And we know how that panned out, right? Things like that. Like we even mentioned UBI, universal basic income. You've since had a really good episode on that, complicating that, but I haven't heard that being floated at all recently. Um, so a, a lot of what I anticipated could happen politically has not happened. With with few exceptions, I mean, we could talk about the, the the federal budget and and childcare that was big, um, not big enough, I think, at all, and it, like leaving it to provinces and whatnot. But there was that kind of, um, language that universal, um, sort of accessible childcare that many of us have been fighting for for our whole lives. So a lot of that didn't happen, and what I couldn't have anticipated, there's just no way. If you told me where I was at right now, like back then, I could have expected this. I could not have expected that I would not want to socialize. I
0: After, during or after? after like
1: I just, like right now, don't feel like socializing. And if you had asked me back then and said, you know what, there are going to be like on and off lockdown measures for a year and we won't be bubbling. It'll be worse than it is now and et cetera, et cetera. I would have thought like, oh man, by that time, I'm going to be wanting to throw a rager. I'm going to want to travel. I'm going to want to do like a sabbatical, like year round the world trip. Like we're going to all go wild. And instead I feel so antisocial. I don't want to celebrate anything. I Ritual doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Like I I have lost that craving. I've My introvert side that was at like a two is at a 10. And I think that speaks to the wear and tear on our mental health that the last year has taken. I just feel exhausted. And so I I couldn't have anticipated, you know, we had those group chats. We talked a year ago about like, it was the time for the group chat and we were all reaching out and you were setting goals and we, you know, we were trying to give ourselves permission to be less productive And I like was like, yes, you know, I'm starting to get like my head around this pandemic and I'm going to start, I'm going to call my grandmother. I'm going to reach out a little bit more. And now the worst thing that you could invite me to is a Zoom birthday party or a phone call. You know, it's like, what are we going to talk about? The pandemic? Great. Don't want to do that. Don't want to make small talk. Don't want to have to carry the conversation. I've lost the skills and there's nothing to say. (laughs) I could not have anticipated that. And I mean, in a related way, I guess, I I didn't know what this mental space would feel like. There's just no way to to anticipate that.
0: I th- I, I see people are sort of planning things and parties, and I see all these people talking about the stuff they're all going to do when this is over, and and I just always want to say that is fantastic, and I'm genuinely happy for you, and I want you to thrive, but please don't invite me, <laughs> yeah. because I, mean, I don't. I don't- want to go
1: I don't know what that says about us like maybe that's why we're friends (laughs) but I don't know I mean I'm sure that this is a common experience for for some
0: people but well I was going to save this for later in the episode but I think it flows better now Uh, you you know psychologists are talking about COVID anxiety and and worry about people reintegrating post-vaccination and once this this pandemic ebbs and, and mostly abates. And, you know, there's a real concern that people just don't want to, or are not going to be able to, I mean, that it's, not, it's not, uh, frivolous. It's not us just being, you know, difficult or cheeky. It is a genuine expression of anxiety that is going to be, I think, difficult to overcome in the, in the months to come for a lot of us.
1: Yeah. I, I find that really relatable. And I, I mean, I think I've had anxiety, I think I had anxiety before COVID but not a lot. Like I kind of knew what it felt like to be anxious, but it wasn't something that was a big struggle for me before the pandemic. And when the pandemic started, I it was very at the surface. It was racing thoughts, it was, you know, it was every symptom, it was fighting against panic attacks, like insomnia, just all of it. And that has lasted and changed and we could get into that. But I, that is something that I couldn't have anticipated about myself. I wasn't sure if I was an introvert or an extrovert, whatever. Like I don't particularly love parties anyway. I like a little intimate dinner and mostly with the people I text every day. (laughs) But, but now it's like, there's a couple friends who are my close friends whose company I really enjoy. And we could be meeting outside at a park and, going for a walk or whatever, like the sort of, we've been in BC able to do that for a little while. And I cannot respond to the invitation. I can't, they're just like, we're good anytime. And there, there being no pressure about it, but I'm like, yeah, cool. Like maybe on the weekend, I just don't follow up. And I, this is, this is not what I'm usually like. It's strange. It's yeah. I, I think about it as like a choice I'm making, but obviously if it's, on, it's sort of out of character for me to like not even want to see these folks and in that setting that there's there's something deeper like there's a psychological kind of barrier here. and the this, maybe the scariest part about it is I don't feel like overcoming it. I don't feel like working on it.
0: Yeah, I mean neither. I feel the same way about messages. I've just reached a point where I get you know extraordinary number of messages across platforms in any given day and I've just sort of said I'm just not going to answer them. I'm just, I've, I'm not, there's no pretense anymore. It's just, it's just not going (laughs) to happen. You you know, with all due respect and apologies, I'm just not going to do it because I don't want to, but you know, I, I have found, you know, my anxiety has ebbed and flowed over the course of the last 14 months. And at one point I just didn't think I would leave my apartment for anything. And eventually I did, you know, mostly to walk most days by myself around town, but I don't hang out with anybody, but I, you know, I, I'm curious about how you found the anxiety highs and lows since last March, and how you've come to manage them. And I'm specifically thinking about this as, uh, you know, as someone who has—I'm talking about you here—written about the age of anxiety, right. specifically being a being, you know, mothering in the age of anxiety, having a family in the age of anxiety. But I also want to think about this, you know, as as human beings who have to produce, who are labor units in the age of anxiety. I mean, how have you managed the sort of highs and lows of? of personal anxiety, of family anxiety, of labor anxiety over the last 14 (sighs) months.
1: This brings me back to your first question, actually. I could not have predicted that I would be working at full capacity again. Not that I'm mentally at full capacity, but that the requirements are way more than they used to be. Like I I was just messaging with someone the other day and saying like, oh, we're back to like having to do what we always did. But no, we're back to doing way more work than we always did. Like we work in the university and you're doing remote teaching. Everything takes way longer. You have to reprep everything. All of your correspondence is on email all of a sudden. Zoom fatigue is real. So not only have the expectations gone back to normal, you know, we were chatting about like three hours, three good deep work hours. is a good day or whatever. Like, it's just, that's gone and we're just supposed to survive now and just go back to our, and maybe there's some leeway. Like, I'm not sure what's happening in the private sector. I don't know what's happening in government. Again, I don't talk to anybody, (laughs) but I, but I, I, I am pretty shocked that like, I I would have thought that if we were in this position now that my employer would have offered me care leave or something, you know, or that like that some program would have rolled out to be like, okay, look you can take parental leave if you've got kids under 5 if you're homeschooling here's a subsidy or whatever i would have thought that if we had this long to deal with like it, like and i mean it's not over it's not close to over that 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 there would have been some other kind of support so i mean your question's an interesting one about the ebbs and flows of feelings of anxiety and like i like to think about public feelings right like things that we go through as a collective, even if we experience them differently. So like we've experienced grief and COVID, some people have experienced a whole lot more grief as they've lost loved ones, spouses, children. Um, and I have not been touched by COVID in that way. The grief I've experienced is a kind of mild one. It's the loss of daily life and of planning for the future. But, I do think that there are feelings that we can map publicly when there's a problem that is global in nature like this. And the thing that gets me now is I cannot remember this last year, and I think that speaks to the anxiety of the last year. But like, if you asked me at Christmas time, I was still kind of interested in mapping the, like, like charting the course of public feeling over the time of the pandemic. And so I would have said, March was total chaos. We still thought that COVID was on surfaces. We were wiping down groceries is the thing you hear in every podcast, in every newspaper article about what March was like, the the time that we were wiping down groceries. It's like, it brings back that like visceral, um, fear about that time. Like I was barking at the kids if they touched a park bench, it was just awful. But, and then like the summer kind of lightened up. Like it was, it was, we were scared of even like a dozen case counts, you know, but it wasn't a big deal. And then the fall hit and of course the second wave. And I, and I think then we sunk into kind of like the depression of the fall. Like Peter and I were like making cocktails, eating bags of chips. Like it was, it was an ugly time. I think it was like depressing especially through the holidays. And and that is when I stop remembering how this feels. I can't really tell you what happened in the last four months. And I've seen, like, my anxiety feels worse than ever. And I think, I, and I've heard this described as like a kind of languishing. Like, it just feels to me now like a kind of lack of wellness, just a an utter emptiness, like a, a fatigue to the bones. And And, and I think that's also particular to caregivers, like we're just absolutely drained. But I I also think that that's probably a relatable feeling based on what I'm seeing, based on the fact that a lot of people seem to be retreating from communication and I, and my memory's gone, which is a frightening sort of sensation, you know, like kind of feeds the anxious cycle because I I really can't tell you what happened between the December holidays and, and now.
0: I, 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 I can't remember any of it. I, oh, the days blend together because nothing separates them. nothing stands out as a marker where you'd say, okay, this was, you know, this is February, this was March. It's just one giant blob.
1: Yes. And that's why it's raced by that's like definitely scholars of memory talk about that all the time, which is why you can remember the day you wiped down your groceries, the day you didn't have, Easter whatever, you know, like you can, your body remembers the lack of ritual. And so we have these things that punctuate, but I guess, yeah, I, th- I think also just the, the long game of, of having a baseline stress and uncertainty that's so high, you know, like the cortisol that whatever, like that's just, you can, it's, it's totally unsustainable. So I just feel like we're in this, I don't know, this sort of like, Lethargy doesn't quite quite capture it. I was saying to someone yesterday, it's not burnout either. Like I th- I think I experienced burnout back in August. What's this version? <laughs> like there was no recovery from that. So what are we doing now?
0: <laughs> the do you want to hear the saddest, the saddest story? I no. <laughs> I was, you know, I'm here, but I'm, I'm here alone and my family is mostly in the West. And, uh so at Christmas, I was here by myself. I didn't see anybody and which is okay i mean i i you know miss the ritual of christmas but i was mostly fine i was just you know i put up decorations i watched the simpsons christmas episodes i <laughs> you have christmas.
1: had a bizarre year we'll maybe get I, i've had this, a very bizarre I, year yeah
0: <laughs> we can flip the script here and we can we can get into that but i i so <laughs> christmas eve i ha- was drinking you know like a christmasy drink and had the lights up and I logged on. I, I was going to play some call of duty and I get into the call of duty lobby and we start sitting there hanging out and a guy says, uh, so we're all here alone on Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's pretty sad. And it was everyone goes quiet and then he says, uh, Merry Christmas. And everyone's like, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and it was a celebrated, uh, my Christmas Eve with a bunch of randoms on, in the call of duty lobby. And it was sort of sweet in its own very, very sad totally
1: i mean i'm sure a lot of people experience this every christmas eve but
0: (laughs) yeah yeah it's true i didn't go i wasn't home last christmas either but this this time certainly felt different but but the struck but our structures haven't changed right i mean when we're thinking about late pandemic anxiety and thinking back to early pandemic anxiety the as you mentioned it didn't get better in a lot of ways it got worse and the structures didn't catch up to support us it's you know now we do this sort of thing where we say well, I hope you're okay. Hope you're doing as best whatever. Uh, Take care of yourself mentally. You know, self care is important. By the way, where the hell is that thing that I need?
1: I think that was honestly. I think that was January right. or like the fall. Like now, I can see the wellness checks. I'm just like, anyway, hi. So like, there's no. Do remember when there was like a big piece that came out about like how not to say how are you in a, t- a grief stricken time? I think it was late spring last year. And it was like, here are some alternatives. I hope you're doing as well as possible. You know, like, I hope you're getting a chance to unwind or whatever, like, just like how to communicate one-on-one when there is nothing good to say. And I, I noticed now like just a, a, um, not like a lack of empathy necessarily because we're all people. And I think if people actually do show their feelings, there's a, a give and take there, but nobody wants to talk about it. It's, it's, Done, you know, it's normal now, and I don't see a lot of you know, how's your family? How have you guys been hanging in there? Like, nobody's checking in on that stuff. I don't think that they want the answer, frankly, right? Because if somebody asked me, (laughs) I would be forced to say, like, we're hanging by a thread, or actually, maybe not even. I, you know, um, I wanted to say something about the Call of Duty, it reminded me of and this is the weirdest segue for me ever to use because i barely know what call of duty is <laughs> but it reminded me of our episode from last year like you and i as like social scientists were excited in a way because we were watching the liberal government's responses we were listening to trudeau's rhetoric and we were breaking it down like in a way it was sort of like this heyday for people who study the welfare state and social spending, right? It was like, how? What are they going to do? What are other countries doing? Like, how are we going to respond? And so,
0: Would it be transformational?
1: Felt right, and like we were like, you know, any crisis. If you waste a crisis, it's a what's the quote? You know.
0: Yeah. No. It, it was, you know, my if, for me, it wasn't excitement. It was more that I thought there was an opportunity, you know, that to to change the the structures that had exacerbated the pandemic and and it could leave us with something structurally better when we were done. How young we were.
1: I mean, you could hear the life in our voices still, and I don't know if you'll hear that today in the same way. Like it, we had a spirited conversation. It was logical. I mean, I know you have a, a great editor and producer in Mira, which is <laughs> awesome. And Aaron it Reynolds, it I believe it was Aaron than-
0: Reynolds, who did the actual editing. They, they, oh, t- they okay. Truly, well, thank you to that person. Mira, Mira, and, and Aaron uh, do a lot of heavy lifting. Let's just (laughs) say.
1: But we also just sounded like we were listening to each other in a genuine way. And I do worry that we've lost some, and that we've lost those social skills, and that that plays into the social anxiety because now the idea of small talk is like absolutely terrifying. Like I hated it to begin with. And now I'm just like, I don't know if I know how to do that anymore. Like any encounters I've had like at Shopper's Drug Mart or whatever, and these like very small and necessary ex- exchanges, I've walked away from the encounter and been like, oh my God, was that weird? And was I weird? Am I being weird? Am I, <laughs> are they freaked out? Oh, did I freak them out right now? <laughs> just like complete social anxiety that I've never had before.
0: Because Dear you've God. just, I mean, I i read something about how we need social, we need the sort of social ritual of small talk and having lost that is actually, you know, been a blow to us. Do you think that there's going to be a, a tough time Getting used to that again,
1: I do. I I, I notice like on Zoom communications that I don't have my head. I there's no adrenaline. It's not the same as being in a room full of students. Um, th- that kind of thing. And so, I do think we've lost like those. I mean, what are called soft skills. And I don't like that name for them because I think they are vital life-giving human beings on a planet, like other animals communicating with each other. skills. Um, but yeah, I think that's going to be like, we couldn't replace that. And one of the things you and I said last year, like I, I was talking about care and I was thinking about it in advance of my book coming out at the time. And I was saying like, responsiveness is part of the care relationship and we're going to have to evolve to do that digitally. And I don't think we did. I don't think you can, I don't think it's possible to retain those skills of responding to somebody's needs in the digital environment. I think it's way too detached. Um, So I think we've kind of failed in that respect, but back to call of duty. Sure. Always. (laughs) You and I, and a group, like part of this group chat thing, um, found a new video game is that what you would call that yeah okay <laughs> so i was like oh my gosh i'm gonna play a video game this is gonna be pretty fun don't starve
0: together is the is.
1: The i don't game. starve together okay so it's a cool game it's very complex it's like symbolic and like there's lots of narrative happening thematic it seems great it seems like something i'd be into and we played it a couple times and we'd all like crack our beer or whatever and pretend we were like at a trivia night, like the before times or whatever that us dorks do. And I just, it's burned in my memory that on like the second or third time we tried to do this, I just got furious. I just very out of character because I rarely get angry. I just was like impatient with everybody. I didn't want to be playing. I had way too much work to do. And I look back at that moment as like, I cracked like I was trying to get excited I was trying to do like this is socializing in the pandemic and I was so burnt out I had lost childcare I was mounting a course online and that was the end of my video game career I assume people still play them but
0: Yeah they they remain fairly popular <laughs> despite your absence <laughs> We we miss you don't get me wrong we miss you but we have continued without you
1: I don't think I'm on that group chat anymore
0: <laughs> I don't I don't know no I don't think it I don't think it exists anymore but I I You know, for me, I, my anxiety is, is often debilitating and I probably, you know, I I would estimate that I lose something like three months a year to anxiety.
1: Yeah. That's a lot.
0: It's a lot. And so, you know, and that's been true, you know, since my PhD pretty much. So it's been true for me for a decade and and a bit that I, I lose, uh, you know, at least three months a year. To, That's significant.
1: To, wow, yeah. it's a lot.
0: So everything I do, I have to do sort of in the compressed time that where I'm functioning, and I just have to accept that there's going to be times where it's, I'm just not functioning. It's just not going to happen. But you know, I found that there's no panacea, but there's the, the occasional you know analgesic, right? There's the occasional hmm. release, and uh, <laughs> video metaphor. games have been. That for me, because it's where I go to socialize. And I don't I don't feel anxious when I'm playing. I log on. I, I don't play video games alone typically. I play with with a handful of two or three friends that I, that I particularly like and, and trust and I'm comfortable with. And when I think back on the pandemic, my least anxious, my most engaged, my happiest times were were playing video games. And and I actually think when I look back on this in 10 years, I will be a little bit nostalgic and wistful and even fond of that time where I would sort of anticipate log on play and and genuinely enjoy it because it really did help, help me quite a bit. Yeah. Especially now.
1: I love that. So you're, so would you say, so let me ask you this then if we can flip the interview here, um, whatever
0: we want. We're, we're 14 (laughs) months into this. Who cares? Let's just do whatever.
1: (laughs) I'm surprised we're still following each other in the conversation. I get paid
0: either way. I
1: hope. (laughs) Um, Have you? Can you trace your video game usage? Can you map the patterns of video game use? Your use of the analgesic in the last year does that tell you anything about where you've been at mentally? I'd be curious. You know, hours spent playing video games. So, so that's one thing. I'll let you think about that while I keep talking. Sure. I, I also, I also am struck by how different our experiences have been of the pandemic because you have been completely isolated and I have been smothered with children and can't get a second to myself. And I live with, I live with my partner. We've both been working from home this whole time. We have not gone to our offices for 14 months. We've been sharing, we've been coworkers and the kids have been home for half the year on and off. Um, because of daycare closures and exposure events and them getting a little sniffle and et cetera. And so I have not been able to carve out time to to myself. I feel kind of tapped out. And so for me, like when I went online to socialize and play a video game or even online to a Zoom birthday or whatever, I was just like, no, I can't give any more of myself. All I can do is trashy television and it has to be silent in the house. I can't talk to my husband. I can't text. I just need to totally melt into the couch and not have any other um, stimulus. And so I, it, it it's like strikes me now that this might be an obvious thing that both of us have need, like the lack that we have both experienced is sort of the inverse lack. And so when I think about the, the beauty of this last year, because there has been a lot of beauty, it is in the knowing exchanges I've had with my partner Um, that we would have never had the intimacy for before this. And the way I've gotten to see my kids grow up as from, from one and three to they're going to be three and five. I've just, I've been totally there for that time. And it's been a huge challenge. It's not something that comes naturally to me at all, but those, there have been many beautiful moments and I'm scared of losing that.
0: We've, they've been like, like you said, they've been very different pandemic experiences and, I, I think there is as as difficult as it is to be alone for a year and to do this all, largely on your own. I've had some people help me out here and there for this and that. Um, but you know, the vast majority of time I've been alone. It, I, I would never in a million years say that it was easier or that it was more difficult than those who've had to take care of others. I mean, I think the pandemic experience of those who are working and giving care, is just more difficult than for the vast, you know, the vast majority of them than it is for those of us who are on our own. So, uh, you know, in, in that sense, I, I think, I really feel for those people who've had to do that, and I think we, our structures have, have by and large failed those folks, above all. And, th- you know, that said, I, I, I w- it was, it was easy for me to to say yes to the occasional social thing when it would come up and I had the energy. Cause I had the time I had nowhere to be. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have to give myself to anything else or to anyone else. Right. I would just say yes. Right. And so I was always keen on games. I was always keen on that. Cause otherwise I was alone.
1: Yes. See, I, I would actually, uh, this is something that I have um, changed my tune on in the last year. I felt the most sorry for myself and others trapped at home with toddlers. Um, a year ago, And now I realize that as much as I desperately need a break, and that is true, I at times think I have been saved from myself mentally because I've had to do the care. And we we talked about this a little bit last year, but I now understand, like, if you have more people in your household, you are still getting those good feelings. You are doing laughter. You are doing – like, I have not been – as isolated as you have been. And so yes, while the obligations have been draining, I think that it's like the food of of human contact that I've been full of at least. So I actually wonder if when we are all, um, recovering from this like mental health crisis, if we will think, you know, the pandemic seemed like it was the hardest for caregivers. And yes, it was in a way because, or, you know, frontline workers doing care work, like exposing themselves to risk all the time. Um, Like, I wonder who's going to have it tougher in terms of recovering from stress and anxiety.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I can't really imagine what it's even going to look like. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the post-pandemic sort of reintegration, what I'd want to do. And I just, I can't in my head make those plans. Just like, I don't know what that looks like or what that would, I've just, you know. I can't either.
1: Plan. I think the thing that I picture if I'm being like, you know, really reflective is I picture being like at my cabin with like another friend or I picture having someone come stay with us or going to somebody else's cabin. But everything I picture is like, bubble version. <laughs> it's like me and within seven others or whatever. <laughs> and that's just like the only vision I have for the future. <laughs> it's, which is really interesting. It's like trained us to be afraid of, 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 extra contacts, you know, like to minimize the number of people you see. Um, that's fascinating. So back to the video game question, your use and whatnot, like if you, do you schedule it in? Is it regular? does it grow like when when you play more do you know that you're feeling particularly rough
0: no when i'm playing it, it i don't think about any of that there's a handful of things that have historically helped me manage anxiety and you know i you know exercise you know sleeping all those are the things you're meant to do and those things are crucial for almost everybody who who suffers from this sort of thing but for me they it has been spending time with my friends and getting immersed in a video game or like going to Las Vegas, which also does it for reasons I can't quite understand. And, and That's so it. bizarre. Yes. I don't. It's understand like Vegas and either. video games. And, you know, for me, uh, if I'm just sort of like sitting on the couch, playing a video game with a friend or, you know, playing a video game by myself and having a movie in the background, I just forget about everything. I don't think about politics. I don't think about, the pandemic i don't think about anything i think i'm just sort of zoned out and it sort of has a stupefying effect but it's still you're still thinking because the games i play tend to have they tend to be engaging either sort of like twitch engaging like a first person shooter game yes. where you're constantly high adrenaline or a strategy game where you have to actually think of very fairly closely about what you're doing they're, they're both immersive and in different ways and it's really powerful But they're stupefying in their own way, and I've actually found that really helpful during the pandemic. But it's also how I socialize, and I quite I quite like that. I mean, there's there's it is my favorite thing to do is just to you know I used to do it on the couch, what you call couch co-op, and now you can't do that, so you do it digitally, network. But it it's a great way to to hang out and, and it's made a big difference. And it's that's been true my entire life though. I and mean, that goes back quite quite a long time. And I think for people who are in their head all the time, this is a bit of a way to escape that. And I, I actually think it's about, it's as simple as that. It's a way to escape being in your head all the time. And as the pandemic anxiety has, has grown, that's become more important.
1: Right. Yes. I can totally relate to that if I sub out video games for reruns of escapist television. Yeah. It's not as immersive because it's not thinking, but like, um, yeah, I think the things that have sustained me, like when I do exercise, get on the bike or whatever, that's a good day. It's always a good day, but it's been harder than ever to be motivated to do that. Even though I know the rewards are there. And I, I think like the walk with the earbuds and listening to podcasts has been my version of that, even if I zone out and think my own thoughts, like even if it's not completely absorbing and immersive the way I think a video game is, because it requires you to be acting, I, um, at least get to kind of drift, um, in a like wonderful kind of like daydreamy way that is really invigorating. I think like I come back a little bit myself and a little bit ready to try to take on either a childcare task or a work task or whatever. So that is something that I really hope to, like, if you ask me now, I would say I'm definitely not going to get rid of that, but I'm not too confident that anything that is normal right now is going to be normal a year from now after thinking about last year. Like I had said last year that I was going to try to journal in a way to um like develop a kind of long-term autoethnography. And I have not written one thing down once <laughs> like Yeah. Does
0: anybody ever, I mean, I, I guess there are people who start it and stick to it, but it seems like. Uh, There's an awful lot of people who abandon it.
1: It, Totally. I think there are journalers and non-journalers. And if you're a non-journaler, maybe this is a controversial thing to say, but if you're a non-journaler, just give up. Because if you're not, like if you didn't start doing it as a kid and you love doing it every day and you're still doing it as an adult and now you're an anthropologist, you're just never going to do it. So there's my argument for the day. (laughs) But I just got an email. I just want to just quickly say like on the topic of who's writing, I got an email from like an older male colleague this morning having um forwarded a, a a journal article an academic journal article written by uh another older white guy about everything we did wrong in the pandemic and it's this like qualitative and quantitative study and like why lockdown measures don't work et cetera, et cetera. and it's just like well theorized historical and contemporary piece and i was like of course <laughs> of course you people get to write this shit right now. <laughs> like, just like very unencumbered, um, you know, people in these positions of privilege who are making something of this time. Um, when many of us who either struggle with anxiety or have other obligations, just absolutely can't. We're just hanging on.
0: Well, thinking about that and thinking ahead to what, you know, a return to quote unquote normal looks like, I'm, you know, it seems to be the case it's probably true that this pandemic has just exacerbated existing inequities and that those who tend to win are winning more and that those who tend to lose are losing more i mean that the 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 social structures favor the sorts of people we think they favor wealthy folks uh upper middle class folks you know white folks men and that there's just more of the same and i wonder you know as we sort of Look to returning to normal. Do you think it's just going to end up back where we were before, or even worse than we were before?
1: I think it is worse. I mean, maybe if you ask me this on a different day, I would feel I—I I don't know. But what we've learned is that the people who've lost their jobs um, have been the people that we would have expected to lose their jobs. Like we learned that when well, we learned that mothers left the workforce, but particularly women of color and and immigrant women who were doing uh, hospitality industry things or other kinds of domestic work and were laid off. And the scariest part about that is when the economy started to recover, those women didn't get hired back. Like there's been a slower recovery. So it, it, there was a bigger impact and a slower recovery for people who are already marginalized and in low wage work. So I think that is, that tells a real story about what we might expect to happen. And I think a year ago, we were worried about the, the gigification of work. You know, we were worried about the Ubers and the Amazons getting bigger. And we know that of course they did. And we've seen prized like gem local restaurants shutter. And we've seen a lot of businesses die in, you know, really sad ways, like community hubs have um, closed. And so I think that um, I'm less optimistic than I was a year ago, and it is completely related to what we have done in terms of public spending, because I do think that this was avoidable. I don't think that we needed to be where we are today with um, this much inequity in the pandemic. Um, Yeah, full stop. And so I I worry that we're on like a path now and, What's going to turn us back toward kind of like a union politics? What's going to create solidarity when our social stratification is exacerbated and when social fractures based on everybody's anxiety and the desire to have more choice have just been increased. So astronomically, people are so angry. I'm noticing more road rage, you know, like it's like that people are losing it. And I, that's, that's not what I expected. Like, I thought we were having this, like, we're all in this together. We were trying to smile over our masks and I think we're all burnt out. And so now I I do worry that there will be worse polarization than there was before. In addition to inequities being
0: worse. Have you seen Batman? the the 1989 Michael Keaton I
1: have Batman <laughs> yes yes I have I
0: think it was the the first movie I saw I can I can kind of remember seeing three movies from that era that my family took me to see uh, Top Gun the Land Before Time and Batman
1: classics I don't know what my
0: dad was doing taking his five year old kid to that movie in 1989 but maybe that explains a lot so that's what <laughs> <clears throat> I can remember. My, my parents were divorced, and my dad picked me up at my mom's place. And I remember going to Trent Cinemas in Peterborough lining up because you you know back then you'd line up below the marquee, right? And going in to see that movie. And there's a scene in that movie where Michael Keaton is at uh, Bruce Wayne is at Vicky Vale's apartment, and he gets a visit from the Joker, and he realizes there's going to be trouble, and so he does this whole thing. And at one point, he picks up a fire poker. And he leads this story into a crescendo. And then he says, you, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. And he smashes a vase with the fire poker. And I was joking on Twitter last night that, like, I used to be very careful when I would log on. Very professional, very constructive. And now I've become Michael Keaton in that scene. Every time I log on, it's like, you guys want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. You know, let's just, let, who, who cares? Let's do this. Let's see yes. where it goes, you know. Fuck Everyone's around and find there. out.
1: There's like and, all these professional journalists who would like only you know link to evidence-based.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, but you're right. Because <laughs> When you were talking about road rage, I was thinking about social media where I spend a lot of time, because yes. that's sort of where I hang out with people now, uh, and people are are just have have just blown their tops.
1: Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah, we're in a state of collective language. That's what I would. Like it's just a lack of what we need, and it's been too long. And I think I mean, i i've I've really respected uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry here in bc. i've I've not been watching updates lately just because it doesn't change my behavior whatsoever. It only changes my anxiety. So I, you know, I see them like kind of weekly instead of daily now at this point. But I have sort of understood that I think that our public health officer here in BC, appreciates this about our social needs and about mental health and the harms that all kinds of measures do. But there's certainly been a ton of backlash and a lot of requests for BC's lockdown measures to be much more strict. And I've had to fight that impulse because I think what happens when we feel nervous is we become xenophobic in a number of ways. So I have like wanted the borders to close. And like, I'm a person who, you know, cites Harsha research on like the borders are violence. This is a, uh, you know, this is colonialism in action. Like I believe that there shouldn't be borders. And yet in this kind of time of fear and of self-protection, I don't want international travel. And that's not something that I'm proud of. I'm just sort of reflecting on that, how that desire comes up so that I can empathize with it, like more collectively. And I've seen a lot of that, like, you know, screw them. Like it just, (laughs) the beginning of the pandemic, when Dr. Bonnie Henry would come, she's extremely popular. Mm -hmm. And so it was the government in BC and the little Facebook chat underneath her live updates, would just be full of like hearts and we love you. And people are making t-shirts and now it's like, why didn't we close borders? What schools transmission? Like people are just absolutely like hurling threats and, you know, um, terrible things. And I I think that our public health officers have been making decisions with this information in mind, knowing that if we do, if like, like certain restrictions will punish the people who are already being marginalized by this pandemic and they will not create solidarity.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I, I'm just watching the time. We're sort of approaching time. I want I wanted to talk about your book a bit more. We talked about it a little bit, but I want to close off on this question. I mean, you wrote the Juggling Mother, Coming Undone, uh, in the Age of Anxiety, available wherever fine books are sold, uh, but published by UBC Press. And it, you know, a year ago when we did this, the book was uh, about to come out. It's out now thinking back on on what you researched and wrote and looking at the moment we're in now, how have you seen what you were talking about two years ago, a year ago playing out? and where do you think it's going to go?
1: Hmm. Thank you for asking me this. I, this is something that's been um, I guess on my mind um, throughout this time. I mean, I couldn't have picked a better pandemic for the title. <laughs> As you know, books are written and titles are chosen long in advance of them coming out. So I wasn't writing about the age of anxiety related to COVID at all. I wrote this book years ago, and it came out in the pandemic. Um, So people often think it is about the pandemic. And then I think about if the lessons are applicable. And in fact, they're more applicable now, because I was writing about the extent to which we download responsibilities to the private family, and how under capitalism and the restructuring of work, the private family means Women and mothers when it comes to family life administration and care work and how that burden has increased. We have kindergarten registration in November, then you get an email in January after responding to respond in 48 hours, you got to sign up for 15 daycares like th- those kinds of like logistical things have in- increased. And It's made this life very stressful. And so we now have like representation in popular and commercial media of this very kind of idyllic mother figure. And it's not the mother figure you picture when you're thinking like the sainted mother of popular culture who bakes the cookies and whatnot. In fact, she's sort of the villain now in popular representation. The mother who rises to the surface as the sort of archetype is this harried kind of like falling apart but still looks badass and hot kind of juggling mother as i call her. So she's like still doing the most, she's working for pay, she's working at home, she's keeping it all together and she's like fetishized in a way through multiple representations, many comedic, many like genius, hilarious comedies that i enjoy, but we see this mother filling the gaps. And i so i think she's very dangerous. And what she what she does is take on an unfair share of the load with a bit of a smile. Even if she's sarcastic and she's funny, like she's badass, we want to be her friend, she's drinking wine or whatever. Um, But she doesn't really want to change the system, right? She's like the glass ceiling shattering feminist. She's not saying capitalism is a problem. Like she's not an activist. She's not really a killjoy. She's willing and complicit. She's willing to and complicit in filling the gaps and maintaining, actually the Way we organize family life, even as she kind of shows its weaknesses, she's not really going to pry those open. And so, and and so this figure fascinates me. It also fascinates me. I've like written a lot about it in the book, like how much I wanted to be her without really realizing that this is the model of success for our generation of women. It's do everything over function, under rest. Don't be good at self-care. Talk about it, but don't actually. Good at it because you don't have time if you're doing it right. And in the pandemic, I mean, I talk about how emotional labor is involved in that. And what I thought at the beginning of the pandemic, like when the book was coming out, is that maybe one thing I would change in the book is how it is more acceptable now to say how you're actually feeling. And so the juggling mother in the book is like, She'll never actually say like, I didn't sleep at all last night. And, you know, like I had too much wine and I'm coping with blah, blah, blah. Like she'll never, she'll never say anything that makes her not an ideal worker and an ideal mother simultaneously. I'll make reference to like, oh my God, my kid threw up on me in the parkade and whatever, if it adds to my cachet as this multitasker, but I won't actually say how I feel in a way that would make people not want to be around me. Right. And, and I, I do think that has changed a little bit. But I think it has changed back. So at the beginning of this year, people would say, How am I on Zoom? Like my chair or whatever would ask. And I'd be like, Oh my God, like the kids are under the table right now as I'm here. And I'm just like hanging by a thread. And now I don't open that way. I just say, You know, heh, like we're all doing. I'm back to that emotional labor of like, just hide my reality because I'm just like, don't want to talk about it for different reasons. But there's still a very performative element to like everything is okay. And so I think the messages in the book about the harm of this fetish are truer than ever. And I I feel lucky for that.
0: Well, I, I highly recommend it and folks can get it. Do you have a preferred bookseller? Is well, it- I
1: love Massey books here in Vancouver and they ship. They're an indigenous owned and operated and you, they also have lots of copies in store. Um, so you can order from Massey books and you can order from the press, but UBC press's shipping is high. And I think Massey is a little bit more reasonable. So yes, I would love if people would get the book. It's the juggling mother and you can follow me along too. I'm at spin Dr. Watson on Twitter and Instagram. And I've totally fallen off social media in the last four months, but I do want to continue a conversation um, about the themes of the book and see how they evolve. And I think the way to do that is through building community on those themes right now. So I am eager to do that. Well,
0: so we've, we've, We've come a long way, huh?
1: I guess. It feels like a hot minute, but yeah, what a year. And did you know there are 15 Land Before Times?
0: I I think the last time I, I saw there were like seven and I thought, oh, I okay, I just can't wrap my <sighs> head around that. Because the first one was very good and very sad and very powerful. And Oof. I can remember it, you know, probably what 30 some years after seeing it um, and i can also remember jurassic park so i don't i don't know what to say to that but uh that is wild do people <laughs> still watch them do people still go and like the kids i mean
1: watch them? the one that they have on netflix i think is like seven or eight or something and it is deeply sad it is yeah i, I mean i think people do yeah i think kids do my kids love it
0: that makes me I, I don't really know a lot about the state of cartoons other than uh, Animaniacs are back and Tiny Toons, I think is coming back too. Yikes, yikes. I, I I, I, the
1: Muppet babies, the Muppet babies for all listeners who are looking to put their kids in front of something. If you've just graduated from Coco Melon, which was our pandemic savior, it's now the Muppet Babies.
0: Like the originals or is there a new one?
1: There's a new one oh, and so. there's also a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So that I've got this almost three and almost five year old, and we just go back and forth. You pick up at Babies. You pick it. Whoever gets the series first, the other one chooses the episode, and that is how we spend our days.
0: <laughs> it sounds, you know, these are all the things that I watched as a kid,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they're back. The
1: kids are having a moment, yeah.
0: And the kids, <laughs> millennial are,
1: parents, are making content. That's what's happening. It's gonna be very
0: strange. <laughs> I mean, I, we've, we're digressing a little bit, but I, I think it's interesting. But you know, in in like ten or fifteen years, are we are we parents and kids going to have shared cultural touchstones? <laughs> Across fifty years of programming,
1: that would be weird. That should not happen. But I will tell you that it's a really weird experience watching cartoons. So today, even if they have these like retro characters and themes, because they move so much faster, like the it's just like a assault on the senses. I mean, you might be used to it because of your Call of Duty stuff, but I watch it and I'm like, I cannot follow because there's too many flashing lights. I miss the animation of like the 1950s.
0: Well, the, let's tack on two minutes on this because I, I you know this actually speaks to something. We you know one <laughs> does of the it, well, it does, <laughs> but it does. The the one of the pandemic phenomena, and I think this is a broader phenomenon, is you know, we're all re-watching the stuff that we've been watching for years because we know how it ends, we find comfort in it, right? We don't, you know, friends would recommend shows to me and I'd have, I would say, okay, interesting. And I would say, you know, a week, two weeks, a month later, they'd say, did you watch it? And I'd have to say, look, I just cannot wrap my head around a new television show. (laughs) Isn't that
1: interesting? Like we were all going to learn the piano and like learn how to speak German or whatever. And now,
0: (laughs) and now it's like, no, I can't even watch. I don't, I can't even think of a new show. I can't even watch whatever the hot new show is. And uh, I have watched two New shows in the last year, Superstore and Mythic Quest. And they are new, but they are also more or less carbon copies of other shows. Like Superstore is a lot like The Office. Mythic Quest is a little like kind of like Sunny in Philadelphia. It's got that kind of up. Like they're very familiar if they're new. And and for me, it's like I, my anxiety is so bad and I'm so exhausted and my, and my decision fatigue is so intense that I just have to watch what I know and I can't break off from that.
1: Yeah, I'm 100%. I mean, I've watched a couple of new shows, but they are all reality television. Like I've watched The Great Canadian Baking Show because is, is it, it is super sweet. Same with Top Chef Canada because even though it is like chefs and they're fighting to the death, it's also super sweet because it's Canadian. It's just kind of like the knockoff version of other things. But yes, I think... I think that speaks to something that we're trying to get at today too like about mental health and anxiety. I'm thinking about how like the give permission um with respect to like that escapism. Like I've read some things about good content, bad content. Um so when you're doing your escapism thing, try to do good tech. I'm like fuck sorry, excuse me. No, like I don't like I'm just going to like do junk tech if that's what I need to immerse myself in and sometimes um that's a rerun. So I'm sorry science.
0: Well, you know what? I think that's the perfect place to wrap up for today. I'm sorry, science. I'm sorry we have failed you. I. Well, first of all, my thanks to you, Amanda Watson, feminist theorist, lecturer in the department of sociology and anthropology.
1: Thank you so much for having me, uh, David Moskrop, PhD that he's not using. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. Just let me say that was really great.
0: Fantastic. And, and you, I think, think you are the first returning guest I'm pretty sure so that it's an honor the the distinction of of being the first returning guest and as always my thanks to Aaron Reynolds and Mira Ahmad who make the show possible and better and if, if the show sounds coherent and competent to you it's because on the back end these folks are doing a lot of very good work so my thanks to them and as always my thanks to everyone who's listening from wherever you may be listening and if you are out and about In the nation's capital at the moment Uh, just a a little value added bonus here watch out for the geese they are out there they are (laughs) shitting everywhere and they are more dangerous than ever so stay away from the geese give them a wide berth and we'll see you back here in a couple weeks